First Timothy chapter 3, I thank you for your kind and patient attention earlier. Let's quickly look at some further traits of men fit for the office of deacon. Before I do that, let me spend three minutes of your time. If you don't know, if you don't know that there's a glorious day waiting for you, then lay hold of it by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved in that day. That belief will neither regenerate you, nor justify you, nor elect you. But that belief will give you the evidence, the initial evidence, that you are elect, justified, and regenerated. Then add to your faith virtue. Then add to your virtue knowledge. And to knowledge patience. And to patience temperance. And to temperance godliness. And to godliness brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness charity. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. But an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the doctrine of salvation. Do you want to, do you want to lay hold of that glorious day for you? Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized and give him the answer of a good conscience and add to that faith virtue. That's what Peter would say in Second Peter chapter 1. James would say in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead, being alone. It's no more than a devil's faith. But if you can add works to your faith, that's how you lay hold of eternal life. Paul, to- Paul told Timothy to charge the rich under his care. Charge them that are rich that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That means give up their money. That they may lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. When people first hear what we believe, they think that we believe the doctrine of election to a fault. But they don't listen long enough. Because what I just told you is salvation is by works. And what I mean by that is the evidence of salvation is by works. You cannot appeal to a moment in your life where you made a decision because that is not taught in the Bible. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not those things I command you? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. Paul could say of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Brethren beloved, knowing your election of God, how did he know it? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Does your faith bring forth godly works? Does your love bring forth labor for other people? And does your patience give you hope in the face of adversity? That's a child of God is on its way to heaven. It's in Second Peter that we're told. It's in First and Second Peter that we're told about the inheritance that's waiting in heaven for us. And how do we know that it's ours? Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, those eight things I listed, you shall never fall. First Thessalonians is where it describes the Lord descending from heaven with a shout. 
How do we know that he's going to descend from heaven with a shout for us? Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, because of a, lab- a, a work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope. So if you're sitting here today, and you don't know if that glorious day is for you, lay hold of it. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ and lay hold of it by faith. I know with absolute certainty when I say these words that the only ones that will run and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith are those that were ordained to do so. Because as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. That's how we do it. That's what we believe. We have the greatest combination of truth that is in the world today. And it's in other places as well. We're not saying we have a corner on it. But election is by the free will of the God of heaven, who owes nothing to any man but elects and chooses us unconditionally. But we can only know our election by living a life of godliness and righteousness for him. That is the best of both worlds. So many say, well, I just don't think that election and human responsibility can be reconciled. We just reconciled it. God has saved us, and the only way we can know we're saved is to be living for him. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's the gospel. So when we're singing about heaven, and you wonder if you're in that, going to be in that number, lay hold of it. If you're rich, send somebody out to lunch this afternoon. Be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. I'm serious. You say, well, you can't buy your way into heaven. Did I say anything about buying your way into heaven? I said, lay hold of eternal life for yourself, for your assurance and confidence. That's how you do it. Oh, what a, oh, the truth is sweet, brethren. The truth is sweet. You know, the Arminians want to err on the one side that it's all human responsibility. The fatalists of various sort want to err on the other side that it's all God's sovereignty and it's both. God has sovereignly saved us, and we obediently and responsibly live for Him, and those are the only ones that can claim eternal life. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to I step down and sing Glorious Day again, so that maybe, maybe a couple more of you can lay hold of it by faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're now at verse 11. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. We have four qualifications of a deacon's wife given here. A woman, a wife, can disqualify her husband from being a deacon. Ladies, here are four things that God considers a great wife for one of his princes. You know, the Lord told in Genesis chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there, that the woman would be made, the wife would be made to help her husband. She'd be a a help, meet for Adam. And a woman can either help or she can hurt. Look at Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs 12. There are godly women, virtuous women, as the Bible describes it in Proverbs 31, and there are odious women as the Bible describes them in Proverbs chapter 30. We do our best to help you young men avoid odious women. Because Proverbs, the prophet Agur in Proverbs chapter 30 said, an odious woman is something the world cannot bear. It's one of the four things 
that the world cannot bear. It is a marital hell to marry an odious woman. To marry a gracious and virtuous woman is a marital heaven. And what a difference between the two. The gulf is as big there as it is anywhere. Look at Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. But she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Is that a pretty big difference? A virtuous woman with your last name, loving and serving and helping you, puts a crown on your head and makes you a better man with greater honor and esteem and respect by all those that know the two of you. However, if she's an odious woman, as chapter 27 tells us this way, you can't get away from her smell. Oh, can I... Oh, no. 27.15. 27.15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whosoever hideth her, hideth the wind. Right. And the ointment of his right hand, which bereath itself. If you have cologne or perfume on your right hand, everyone around you is going to smell it. And if you've married an odious and contentious woman... It's the same way everyone smells her, and it ruins your reputation. So a woman can either make or break a man. So let every woman in here tremble before the Word of God. Let every man do what he can to pray for and lead his wife in righteousness and teach her from the Word of God. And let all of you young men remember that you will never go higher than your wife in many respects. So marry as high as you can in the Lord. May the Lord bless you to do that. Amen. Deacons' wives must be exemplary, for their conduct reflects on the office and the gospel. And the first point we have to look at here, and we can look at, we can look at I've got 10, 20 verses here, about the difference that a, wo- a woman can make in a life. Look at Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla could take Apollos home, who was a mighty man in the Scriptures, an eloquent man, fervent in spirit, taught in the way of the Lord. And the two of them together could teach Apollos the way of God more perfectly. So that when he went on his way into a Corinth and then Ephesus, he mightily convinced the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And you know, there's a couple of times in the Bible where Paul says, Greek, Prisca, and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla, that's her nickname. It's in the Bible. Uh, greet, greet them because they're servants of mine. Both of them got the commendation and praise of the Apostle Paul. A deacon's wife needs to be grave. She needs to be serious and sober. 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's go back there just so that we can have it before us. What does it mean to be grave? The same thing it meant when we were looking at it for the deacon himself back in verse 8. It means to have weight or importance, to be dignified, to have reverend seriousness, to be serious, not to be mirthful or jocular, jesting or joking. It's to have a serious, weighty Approach to life. And so a deacon's wife needs to be a calm, grave, seriously minded woman in order for a deacon to qualify. If she's a joker, laugher, she's going to hinder her husband's reputation because the couple that should be a deacon, and the couple is not the deacon, but the man is with his wife, both need to be grave. Because life is serious, and serving the Lord is serious, and serving church business is serious. 
First Timothy three eight. Likewise, First Timothy three twelve. I mean, let the deacons be the. I want verse eleven. Even so, must their wives be grave. Even so, as we looked at verses eight through ten and saw that there ought to be clear evidence for a deacon that he meets the qualifications listed there. So there should be clear qualifications met by the deacon's wife. First of all, she's grave. Second of all, in verse 11, she's not a slanderer. She does not spread anything about other people that would hurt or damage their reputations. What is slander? The utterance or dissemination of false statements or reports concerning a person or malicious misrepresentation of his actions in order to defame or injure him. That's what slander is. Usually, we limit slander to saying things that are not true about someone. And we use tail-bearing, whispering, when you're spreading the true things about someone. You know, that's called revealing secrets in the Bible. And so you're a tail-bearer. The tale may be true, but why are you bearing it? Are you doing it to build someone's character up? Or are you doing it to tear someone's character down? Backbiting. Why are you talking behind someone's back? Why are you biting them when they're not present? So we have backbiting, tail-bearing, and whispering if the things are true, slandering if they're not true, but all of them are designed to hurt another person's reputation. And a woman that does that, her husband cannot be a deacon. Because a deacon is going to know more about what's going on in a church than the average church member. And the intimate relationship of marriage being what it is, that deacon's wife is going to find out more about what's going on in the church than the average church member. And if she's a slanderer or, can, or likes to maliciously hurt people by spreading reports about them, she would be able to do that. So he can't be a deacon. She can't be a slanderer. We usually use the word gossip. Today, you know, when we spread gossip about someone, that is either true or false information that is designed to hurt them in the opinions of those that it's being spread to. And so a, a deacon's wife cannot be a slanderer. There are so many warnings about this, it's hard to even know where to turn, but I want to remind you that it can be classified as murder in this respect. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus taught that to be angry with your brother without a cause is breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. To be angry with your brother without a cause, to call your brother a fool without a cause, is to be guilty of the Sixth Commandment. See, the Pharisees had limited the Sixth Commandment to literally killing someone. And Jesus opened it up a little bit, just a little, by saying, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty, and is in, in guilty of, and, and is facing judgment in Matthew chapter 5. Because when you slander someone or you spread reports about someone to destroy them, you're destroying their reputation. Right. So it's, it's akin to murder. Just like when you're angry with somebody, it's the emotion that eventually can lead to murder. So the Lord opens up those commandments in the Sermon on the Mount so wide and broad for it to get everyone. Look at Proverbs chapter 26, just for, another re- just for a reference. Proverbs 26. There's a number. They'll be in the outline 
Um, I, I believe because you've all read the Proverbs commentaries for several years, you've seen some of these many times. Proverbs chapter 26 has several references. Let's start at verse 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. The fire here is not a fire that you want. But where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's strife, fighting, warring, enemies, if there's no talebearer, it all ends. Because there's nothing to yap about. Verse 21, as coals are to burning coals, this is adding more coals to an existing fire, and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Talebearing is terrible, because you're taking a tale, a secret about someone's life, and spreading it to others, and the party that's being told about It's like a sword going deep into their belly because people are finding out about an event in their life that they don't have any right to, no need to hear. And so it damages a reputation simply by verbal spreading or keyboard spreading nowadays or telephone spreading of tales about a person's life. Tail bearing. You're bearing tales. The Bible describes it as spreading secrets. Look at Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11 and verse 13. All you women, when you're girls, when you're talking to someone, don't say anything negative about anyone else. Say positive things about other people. Build other people up. Just think if we all did that. We would only mention someone else's name if we're going to say something good about them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Proverbs 11 and verse 13. A talebearer revealeth secrets. But he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Look at that verse. A faithful spirit conceals the matter. There isn't any reason to spread secrets. But a talebearer lets the secrets out and spreads them. And a woman that does that, her husband cannot be a deacon. Much more could be said. Number three, she must be sober. Now, if we have sober and grave in a very short list... They must not mean the same thing. So we look at the word sober in the sense that we tend to use it still today. Moderate, temperate, avoiding excess in respect of the use of food and drink, not given to the indulgence of appetite. We don't want to look at sober as being grave, even though the word sober can carry the meaning of being grave, because we've already got the word grave here. Since we have them both in a very short list, We want to look for what else could sober add to the definition of grave. And that is to be disciplined, temperate, and moderate in the use of eating and drinking. For the deacon, it was not given to much wine. For the deacon's wife, sober. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 to see that the Bible uses the word sober in this way. And yes, we're appealing to our English Bible the one that God providentially preserved for us. And so that's as deep as you need to go. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We do not take your Bibles or the understanding of those Bibles out of your hands and put them in the hands of the clergy. We don't care if it's Latin, Greek, Hebrew, or any other language, Aramaic, Chaldean, Daniel chapter 4. 
you have the Word of God and you can try everything you hear from this pulpit by the English words in your lap. Amen. Because God has blessed these English words more than He's blessed the words of any other language. Amen. 400 years of earth-shattering spreading of the truth of the gospel by the King James Bible. And brethren, it's 2008. We are three years away from a 400-year anniversary. And we are not going to let that year slip by us without doing something to honor the great Bible that we have. We'll do something in this city to honor the King James Bible when it comes to its 400th anniversary. What a, what a blessed Bible that has lasted that long and continues to bear fruit. You know, the Word of God works effectually in those that believe. And the King James Bible has been working effectually for 400 years, proving that it has a divine stamp of approval upon it. We measure the Bible by faith and fruit, not by manuscripts. Faith and fruit. Do Do you know how all men measure the canon of 66 books? By faith and fruit. The very criteria we use to prove the King James Bible. No one can prove how or why we have the epistle to the Colossians and not the epistle to the Laodiceans except by faith and fruit. Do you know what? You are big enough in your heart, your soul, and your mind to get around faith and fruit. You can defend the King James Bible to yourself and to other believers by going after faith and fruit. God promised to preserve His words We have faith in those promises. His words would bear fruit. We have 400 years of fruit on the King James Bible. And that's where we rest our case. There is no ending of the arguments of manuscript evidence and textual integrity and all that stuff. They can never reach a conclusion because it can only be reached one way, faith and fruit. God has said, the King James Bible is mine. The people that have read it have proven that for 400 years. So we trust our King James Bible. So when we have the word sober in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 11, we look for the word sober in our King James Bible, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, which is a rule of Bible study taught internally to the King James Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Let's get verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. By comparing the parallelisms here, we can see that we're not to be asleep, but we're to wake up. We are not to be drunk, but we are to be sober. So the word sober here, used by the Holy Spirit, is showing us it's not to be drunk. A deacon was said not to be given to much wine. His wife is said to be sober. She is to rule her appetites for food and drink. Last of all, in verse 11, she's to be faithful in all things. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. A deacon's wife must be exemplary in the way that God measures women. We can read in Proverbs 31 a lengthy description of women, a high and lofty standard. 
And for you women that get terrified and intimidated by that high and lofty standard, I remind you that a woman wrote it, not a man. When I write my proverb commentaries and I get toward the 31st of the month, I can expect some surprises in my inbox after writing a commentary on one of those verses in Proverbs 31 because it is such a high and lofty standard for women. But that isn't Solomon writing that, and that isn't Lemuel writing it, and it's not Jonathan Crosby writing it. That's King Lemuel's mother that said, this is the kind of woman you need to marry, son. She wrote that. So all of you women, back off your dislike of the male that wrote Proverbs 31 and increase your love of the woman that wrote it. Isn't that something? And you know, a great woman is going to want her son to marry someone like that woman. Faithful in all things. This doesn't mean she can be perfect any more than the deacon can be perfectly blameless. Can she be faithful in all things if she makes a mistake once in a while? She can repent. She can confess it and repent it and, and go right over it. Of course she can. Are we talking about little tiny offenses between individual church members? No, we're talking about is she failing in some area of her life when it says faithful in all things? Does she guard her speech? Does she love her children? Does she love her husband? Is she chaste? Is she a keeper at home? Does she keep the home? Is she a guide of the domestic affairs? Does she do all those things? That's what the Bible says about a good woman. She'll be faithful in all those ways. An unfaithful wife will damage a deacon's reputation and or subvert his good conduct. He can't have an unfaithful wife. What was that verse I mentioned earlier today? One word that describes a woman that will be always esteemed. Gracious. A gracious woman retaineth honor. There's a woman faithful in all things. Let's look at Titus very quickly and see the list that is given there of things that older women are to teach younger women to be like. Titus chapter 2, verse 4, the aged women are to teach the young women to be sober. It all connects, doesn't it? Trait of godliness for a woman to be sober. Moderate and temperate, temperate in her appetites. To love their husbands. So she should be a lover of her husband. To love their children. To be discreet. Guarding her speech very carefully and only saying the right thing at the right time. Chaste. Very pure. And godly in keeping her female honor toward her husband. Keepers at home. Not running about from house to house and saying things which they ought not to speak. Nor being lazy. As 1 Timothy 5 helps explain this expression. Good. Flat out good woman. She does things that are good toward others, toward her family, toward the church. She's obedient to her own husband that the word of God be not blasphemed. Passages like this, a woman keeps these things. No woman keeps them perfectly. But we know women that keep them generally. Or without, they they keep them faithfully. We know women like that. We have women like that in this church. We have quite a few women like that in this church who are faithful in all things. They love their husbands. They reverence their husbands. They obey their husbands. They love their children. They train their children. The law of their mother is in those children's ears. They're keepers at home. They're guides of the domestic affairs. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're chaste. They're discreet. They're careful. They're grave. They're sober. They're sober. 
We have them. But if a woman fails and has outstanding character traits that flunk the, the things the Bible says about a woman, her husband cannot be a deacon. Verse 12. 1 Timothy 3.12. Verse 11 was about the deacon's wives. Remember why we're doing this? Not just, not just to know how to pick deacons. But we all want to be challenged. Every father and husband in here, those four things in 3.11, you want to train and teach in your wife and help her to have those, and you want to train and teach them in your daughters. And every young man, you want to marry a woman that's already got this. Because you will never amount to much if you marry below this. Marry as high as you can in the Lord. Verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife. It doesn't say having been the husband of one wife. This is a prohibition of polygamy. This is a warning that to be in the ministry of a New Testament church, you had to hold Jesus Christ's highest standard for marriage. You could not have multiple wives. Look at Matthew, Matthew 19, puts it this way. Jesus set up in the New Testament a restoration of higher standard and view of marriage than the Jews had degenerated to under the law of Moses. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus said to the Pharisees that were tempting him, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Matthew 19, now 5. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God's ordinance of marriage is one man, one woman. In Malachi chapter 2, he said that he had the residue of the Spirit, and he could have made more wives for Adam if he would have wanted to. But he did not do so because monogamy is his ideal and his standard for the human race. Because the Jews were given to polygamy, and because the Eastern nations allowed it, there were polygamists. They could be church members, but they couldn't be in an office because it would degrade the standard of marriage that Jesus Christ had set. So it says in 1 Timothy 3.12, he needs to be the husband of one wife at the present time, one wife. That's what the verb to be in this form means. 1 Timothy 3.12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. It's not let the deacons have been the husband of one wife. That would mean they couldn't marry after death. They couldn't marry after a legitimate divorce. They'd be locked up. And where? how would anything of righteousness be served that way by having a woman die in childbirth two years into a marriage and her husband not be able to marry again and lose qualification to be a bishop? This is a polygamy. This is a rule against polygamy, and we know it by the verb be. It's present tense condition of a man. He can only have one wife. You know, Catholics look at this verse for this, these deacons and the bishops and totally blow it out because they believe in celibacy. And yet it says that marriage is fully acceptable for those in the office of bishop or deacon, but it can only be marriage to one woman. Second half of that verse, 
ruling their children and their own houses well. Deacons must rule their families of children that are in their houses and domestic servants that are in their houses, and they better do it well. To do it well is not only ruling, but it's also ruling with some patience and kindness. Because the Bible warns that ruling without patience and gentleness leads children to discouragement. So as we look at 1 Timothy 3.12, the second half, ruling their children and their own houses well, it's a father that has his family, and his chil- his, including his children, and any domestics that he might have, because most of them had domestics in these days, where both children and servants were to be treated a certain way by a man in charge of his house. He ruled his whole house well. And well isn't just force. Well also includes gentleness and love toward those children, lest they be discouraged, as Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3 tell us. But here's a man who has his children obeying him. This is not a requirement for perfect children. This is a requirement for fathers to do what they have to do with children, whether they're good or bad. Ruling his own children well. What if there is a child, what if there is a child in such a man's family who gives him some trouble? A teenager. But he applies the rod to him and the reproof as the Bible tells him to in Proverbs 29, 15 and 17, then he is still ruling well. And if he reaches a point where he can no longer control and that child is an incorrigible, there, is, there are things that he can do to cast that scorner out. And he's still ruling well. Think with me about the Bible examples that help us understand this short little clause. Was David's sin, not David, let's not go to David first. Let's go to Eli first. Was Eli's sin having imperfect children, or was Eli's sin not dealing with his rebel children the right way? Eli wasn't under God's judgment because he had wicked sons. Eli was under God's judgment because he didn't deal with his wicked sons the right way. Did Eli rebuke his wicked sons? Yes. 1 Samuel chapter 2. What did God hold Eli responsible for that he didn't do? Restraining those sons from the wickedness that they were involved. He should have exercised greater authority and more severity to have stopped those sons from what they were doing. And that was his error. If he would have done that... He would, he would have satisfied everything God was expecting of him in 1 Samuel 3. He would have been ruling his own house well because he would have restrained them from their wickedness. David. Which son does the Bible tell us that David had a problem being a father? Adonijah. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6. David at no time questioned that son about what he was doing, and therefore he let that son build up a pompous, presumptuous attitude that he could try to take the kingdom while David was on his deathbed. And the Bible condemns David for that in 1 Kings 1.6. He had never questioned his son. He was not ruling that man and keeping his ambitions in check. That was the error. The error is not having ambitious sons. The error is how you handle ambitious sons. In Deuteronomy 21, when the parents bring their son to the elders of the city for stoning... The error is not in the parents. The error is in the son. This, our son, is a drunkard and a glutton. He will not heed the voice of his mother and his father. 
They are doing their job, but they have reached a point where he is an incorrigible. There aren't very many of these if the first incorrigible gets treated the Bible way. It's amazing how many incorrigibles get corrigible. You know, if we, if we had pay-per-view TV for stonings of teenagers, it would help all teenagers become very docile. Oh, it's so simple. That's two plus two equals four. That's the Word of God. All you'd have to do is watch a couple of those, and it would help give you a mental adjustment in relating to your parents. A mother and a father could bring their son out and take care of him that way. Would they still be ruling well? They'd have been using God's opportunities for them to clean up their household. So when we look at 1 Timothy 3.12 and it says, ruling their children, their own houses well, we're looking at a present tense situation where a man has proved himself that over, over time, year, two years, five years, his children obey him. He has them under control. Whenever they do something wrong, he immediately gets it straightened out and they are back on the right track. That's a man ruling his own family well. Doesn't say anything about having to have perfect children. And if he has very difficult children, then we know that he has a difficult... Don't we figure that out eventually, that some parents have more difficult children than other parents have? That's God's choice. But the one that has more difficult children, he has to put forth more effort. And we, if we see that more effort put forth to train those more difficult children, and if he reaches wit's ends and has to throw a scorner out, he is still ruling his own family well. But if we see a father that lets children get away with stuff and does not correct it and they're still under his roof, then we see a man that's not doing his job and he can't be in the office of a deacon because he won't do his job taking care of the church. If a man won't take care of his own children and doesn't have the, doesn't have the management skill of combining love and fear to get children to do what they need to do, he will not have the management skill to be a deacon and oversee the business that a deacon is assigned so 1 Timothy 3.12 is not teaching us that children have to be perfect. We go back to verses 4 and 5 of the same chapter where it's telling bishops that they have to rule their own houses and have their children in subjection with all gravity. And it goes on to explain why. Because if a man does not know how to take care of his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And in the church of God, does, is, it, is there such a relationship that a good pastor never has any Discipline cases? Or is a good pastor a pastor that when there is a discipline case, they deal with it? Are you following? So, So what example of watching a man as a father fits with what actually happens in the oversight of a church? It's not that there's never any members to put out. There's no pastor good enough to keep a church all walking in righteousness so that there's never a cause for exclusion. The Apostle Paul knew that right well. 1 Corinthians 5 was written to one of his churches. But when there's someone to put out, he assigns them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do it, to keep the church pure. So when we compare that analogy, oh, okay, so what the Lord is saying is we need a father that does what he's supposed to with difficult children. And you know there's a time when boys, teenage boys or later, are going to leave their father and mother. And the Bible says that. Sometimes they'll cleave to a wife and sometimes they'll just go out and leave their father and a mother. And a man is not responsible for a child that is left to force him to be obeying back at home. Because he may have put the boy out himself. 
And putting that boy out himself may have been an act of ruling his own family well. So when it says, ruling their children and their own houses well, we understand that children still under their authority, not a man, a young man who's left, but those still under their authority in their house and domestics as well, they manage them all well and rule them, showing that they have some leadership qualities that would be fit for the office of deacon. And so we come to the end of chapter end of verse 12, and then it says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree. A man that might be appointed by this church to be a deacon and exercises it well, gets himself a degree in the eyes of this church, all the righteous members in it, and the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, a place of honor in which he can serve Christ in the church. And he gets great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus because he's being put forward by the whole church to serve more directly with the, with the matters of the church. So it builds his boldness in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's holding that faith in a pure conscience. May the Lord bless our study of these character traits. We've covered ten today. Four of them apply to a wife. Six of them apply to the man himself. Let us go out of this place committed, convicted, and ready to fulfill those as well as we can, whether we become a deacon or not. These are marks of the princes of the Lord Jesus Christ.